Welcome to Physiology by Physio, an Inside the Boards podcast. This show brings together some of the best boards-relevant content for physiology and pathophysiology from three innovative platforms, Physio, Inside the Boards, and Med School Phys. Okay, guys, so for this one, we're going to begin with a brief discussion of basic cardiac anatomy to get you warmed up. Then we'll cover some high-yield anatomy points to know for the boards. So I'm assuming that you already have some familiarity with the subject, like the heart has four chambers, two atria and two ventricles. The right atrium receives blood from the superior and inferior vena cavae and then delivers it to the right ventricle. The right ventricle then pumps blood out to the pulmonary artery, to the pulmonary circulation. While in the alveolar capillaries, gas exchange occurs, bringing O2-rich blood back to the heart via the pulmonary veins. Uh, And then the pulmonary veins deliver blood to the left atrium, and then it goes out the left ventricle, out the aorta, uh, to the rest of the body. So I'm assuming that you're already familiar with that really basic kind of stuff. So now let's cover a hodgepodge of fun facts about cardiac anatomy that will hopefully prove useful for both your classes and for the boards. Starting off with the distribution territories of the major coronary arteries, and then I'll mention a couple of other random points. So the main coronary arteries, right and left, sprout off the proximal segment of the ascending aorta. The right main coronary artery then travels along the right side of the heart, supplying the right atrium, and gives off the right marginal branch, which supplies the right ventricular wall. Are you sensing a pattern here? Uh, In supplying the right atrium, the right coronary artery also supplies the primary pacemaker of the heart, which is the... The primary pacemaker of the heart is the sinuatrial node. So then, the right coronary artery swings around to the posterior side of the heart, and in most people, the right coronary artery gives off another major branch, the posterior descending or posterior interventricular artery, and that is a branch of the RCA in about 85% of people, hence we say that most hearts are right dominant, meaning that the posterior descending artery is a branch of the right coronary artery in most people. So what does the posterior descending artery supply? Well, it supplies the posterior ventricular walls and the posterior one-third of the interventricular septum and the posterior medial papillary muscle of the left ventricle. And this makes sense, right? A posterior artery is supplying the important posterior structures. So to summarize, the right coronary artery ends up supplying the right side of the heart and in most people gives off a branch, the posterior descending artery, which supplies the posterior third of the interventricular septum, as well as the posterior medial papillary muscle of the left ventricle. Okay, so in contrast, what supplies the anterior two-thirds of the interventricular septum? Well, the left anterior descending artery, or the LAD, which is the first main branch of the left main coronary artery. Uh, In addition to the anterior two-thirds of the septum, the LAD also supplies the anterior left ventricle and the anterior lateral papillary muscle of the left ventricle. So go figure, an anterior artery supplies the important anterior structures. Um, The left anterior descending is commonly referred to as the widowmaker. So why is this the case? Well, because it's the most commonly occluded artery by coronary artery disease and supplies a huge proportion of the cardiac muscle. Additionally, the left and right bundle branches run in its distribution within the interventricular septum. So blockage of the left anterior descending artery can easily result in sudden death. Okay, so that's the LAD. What is the other main branch of the left main coronary artery? What's the left circumflex artery, and what does that supply? Well, it basically supplies what's left of the heart, so most of the surface of the lateral and posterior walls of the left ventricle. It also helps to supply the anterior lateral papillary muscle. And that last point is significant, 
So which papillary muscle of the left ventricle is more likely to tear after a heart attack, the anterior lateral or the posterior medial papillary muscle? Well, it's actually the posterior medial papillary muscle because it's only supplied by one branch of the RCA, the posterior descending, while the anterior lateral papillary muscle has a dual blood supply from both LAD and left circumflex. So there's obviously more vessels in the heart, but the main ones to know about are the ones that I covered. Okay, so our next cardiac anatomy example. Uh, I mentioned that the superior and inferior vena cavae deliver blood into the right atrium. But what else delivers blood into the right atrium? Well, this is an interesting one, the coronary sinus. And what is that? The coronary sinus is the confluence of veins draining blood from the heart muscle itself. And there are other venous avenues that drain into the heart muscle directly into its chambers, but they're really minor compared to the coronary sinus. All right, everybody, this is Greg from Inside the Boards, and I'd like to cut in here and give a quick shout out to our sponsor for this episode, which is Physio. If you haven't figured this part out yet, we at Inside the Boards really do love what the guys at Physio are doing for the scene of medical education. Uh, first off, they produce this fantastic library of easy-to-consume videos, which cover everything you need to know about physiology for your classes and for the boards. But then they didn't stop there. They went on to produce two more libraries of rock-solid instruction for biochem and biostats, and their microbiology videos are currently in the works. So they're just super busy, and they're getting it done. But in creating new content, they didn't just like stay in their comfort zone with the old 15-minute long whiteboard-style video. No, 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 no. At Physio, they understand that while some topics are best learned by focusing on the underlying process, other topics will just require brute force memorization. So to meet the needs of their learners, the guys at Physio came up with a cool new hybridized learning style that includes both Pathoma-style whiteboard videos integrated together with sketchy-style picture mnemonics. And by seamlessly integrating these two tried-and-true teaching tools, Physio will help you to master med school. Make sure you stick around for the rest of the episode so that you can hear about the exclusive deal that we at ITB got for you, the listener. And now, back to the show. Okay, now I'm going to hand it off to the guys from Physio to provide some really thought-provoking practice questions for you. Okay, here's another question. What vessel in the body contains the most deoxygenated blood. This is the coronary sinus. Remember, the coronary sinus is the large vein in the posterior part of the heart. Some of you may have thought that the pulmonary artery contains the most deoxygenated blood, which is a good thought, but it's not true. The heart actually extracts more oxygen from red blood cells compared to other tissues because heart muscle is so metabolically active. Ultimately, this means the coronary circulation contains the most deoxygenated blood. The coronary sinus is the last part of the coronary circulation before blood circulating in the coronary arteries mixes with the systemic blood. So blood from the coronary circulation comes through the coronary sinus and drains here, and the systemic circulation drains blood right there. They mix and then they enter the pulmonary artery. So we can see that the coronary sinus would contain the most deoxygenated blood in the body. Okay, let's do another question. How would the right ventricle appear on an echocardiogram in a patient with stenosis of the right coronary artery? 
Recall that an echocardiogram is just an ultrasound of the heart, and it can be helpful in viewing how the heart is contracting. Recall that the right coronary artery supplies blood to the posterior part of the right and left ventricles, as well as the posterior part of the interventricular septum. The left anterior descending artery supplies blood to the anterior part of the left ventricle and the interventricular septum. The left circumflex artery supplies blood to the lateral aspect of the left ventricle. In this case, there is stenosis of the right coronary artery. So we'd expect to see decreased activity of the posterior part of the right ventricle on an echocardiogram. Okay, let's do another question. Dilation of what part of the heart can cause dysphagia? Remember, dysphagia just means difficulty swallowing. Recall that the esophagus sits just posterior to the left atrium. So if a patient had a dilated left atrium, you could see that it could compress the esophagus, resulting in dysphagia. Okay, let's wrap up this section with one more question. How would stenosis of the pulmonary artery alter the pressure in the right ventricle, right atrium, and the coronary sinus? Recall that stenosis just means blood has a harder time moving through it. So blood have more difficulty moving from the right ventricle to the pulmonary artery. Stenosis of the pulmonary artery could be caused by a congenital defect, pulmonary hypertension, or other disease processes, but the end result is the same. Less blood is able to move through the stenotic region, which means there's more blood in the regions prior to entering this point. The increased blood in the right ventricle builds up and causes excess blood to enter the right atrium, as well as the coronary sinus. Ultimately, the increased volume in these regions causes the pressure to increase. So, increased pressure in each of these regions. Okay, guys, and it's that time again for another quick plug for our sponsor. Basically, all I want to say with this one is go get a subscription to Physio. They will help you to demolish step one with their high-quality and cohesive conceptual videos, which are similar to the Pathoma whiteboard style. But these are also integrated with story-based mnemonic paintings, similar to the sketchy style, so you can master all of the hardest stuff that you need to know to crush step one. Oh, and did I mention that a subscription to Physio also gets you access to their thorough yet concise textbook, too? What this means for you is that when you're using Physio, you don't need to furiously take notes. It's all written down for you, so you can just go with the flow of the videos and reference the textbook later as needed. They really are doing great work over at Physio, so go check them out. In a few minutes, in the next and last advertisement for this episode, we'll reveal our exclusive discount code for you, but for now, let's get back to it. Now that we've gotten the important anatomy points out of the way, let's dive into heart sounds. And I shouldn't get this excited about a podcast, but we're able to do something pretty cool with the content from Physio here, so keep your ears open for what's to come. But first, I'll give a brief explanation of normal heart sounds. So we'll start off easy by describing the heart valves and their relationship to the cardiac cycle and heart sounds. So starting at the right atrium, blood passes from the right atrium to the right ventricle through what valve? 
It passes through the tricuspid valve, and this occurs during diastole. So during diastole, the atrium is full of blood, and the ventricular myocardium is relaxed. So the pressure in the right ventricle is lower than the pressure in the right atrium. Because the pressure is higher in the atrium than it is in the ventricle during diastole, the tricuspid valve is open and the ventricle receives blood, right? So at the end of diastole, there's an atrial contraction or atrial kick, which results from atrial depolarization that squeezes out the last little bit of blood from the atrium into the ventricle. And this occurs just before the start of systole or ventricular contraction. During systole, as the heart muscle squeezes, the pressure in the ventricle will exceed the pressure in the atrium, thus closing the tricuspid valve. And then the ventricular pressure will eventually overcome the pressure in the pulmonary artery, opening up the pulmonic valve and moving blood forward towards the lungs until contraction ceases. The same process occurs on the left side of the heart, where the blood passes from the left atrium to the left ventricle during diastole, passing through what valve? Passes through the mitral valve. And then during systole, the left ventricle ejects blood into the aorta until contraction ceases and aortic pressure exceeds ventricular pressure, which results in closure of the aortic valve. Okay, so here's a question for you. When the aortic and pulmonic valves close, what heart sound occurs? Well, S2 occurs when the aortic and pulmonic or semilunar valves close, and this is the dub part of the lub-dub that you hear when auscultating the chest. In contrast, the S1 heart sound occurs at the closure of the at the closure of the mitral and tricuspid valves or the atrioventricular valves, and this is the lub part of the lub dub. So this means that the interval between S1 and S2 denotes which part of the cardiac cycle. So the interval between S1 and S2 is systole. Remember that S1 marks the closure of the mitral and tricuspid valves as the pressure in the ventricle rises. And then S2 marks the end of systole, where the pressures in the aorta and the pulmonic artery exceed the ventricle as the ventricle relaxes. Okay, and now contrast this with diastole. So diastole occurs between which heart sounds? Diastole occurs between S2 and S1, whereas systole occurred between S1 and S2. Okay, and here's the part that I was getting really excited about before. Now I'm going to hand it off to physio again. If you're like me and you listen to everything on one and a half or two speed, I'd recommend that you slow down to the regular 1.0 speed for the next few minutes. Now let's dive into the actual sound of a normal S1, S2, and an S2 split. After this segment, you should be able to discern S1 and S2 and be able to hear and identify S2 splitting. If you can know these two sounds and identify them, learning and discerning each heart murmur will be so much easier. So let's listen to what this sounds like. Now let's talk about S2 splitting. S2 splitting occurs as a result of inspiration. You can see that during this period, there's no splitting occurring. However, once the patient inhales, more blood enters the right heart then the closure of the pulmonic valve is delayed, causing the aortic valve to close first, and then the pulmonic valve closing. Now let's look at the waveform and listen to this splitting. Awesome. 
Awesome. So I hope that you guys enjoyed that segment because I was super excited to share it with you guys. Uh, let's finish out the episode with an explanation of S3 and S4 heart sounds. Unfortunately, I didn't have any licensed audio examples to share with you guys, but regardless, I hope that you find these explanations helpful. Now, you can also hear extra heart sounds when you're listening to the chest, S3 and S4, which may suggest underlying pathology. So when present, an S3 heart sound occurs immediately after S2. So what are some things that an S3 indicates? Well, it depends on the clinical situation, but generally if you hear S3, you should think about volume overload. S3 can also be a normal finding, like in pregnancy, a volume overloaded state, or even in children and some athletes. Remember that because the S3 occurs immediately after S2, it occurs during early diastole, so the S3 heart sound results from the vibration created by fresh atrial blood sloshing into a ventricle with excess residual volume in it. Hence, you generally want to think about volume overload when you hear the S3. So can you think of any disease states where you would hear an S3? Well, the differential diagnosis is pretty wide, but I generally try to think about systolic heart failure uh, from any cause like coronary artery disease, alcohol, or viral myocarditis. But remember that it can also be a normal finding, so you need to interpret the S3 finding in its broader clinical picture. Okay, so that was S3. Next, let's cover S4. The S4 heart sound occurs immediately before S1. This is in contrast to the S3, which was immediately after S2. So S4 occurs immediately before S1 at the end of diastole. When you hear an S4, what kind of cardiac pathology comes to mind? Well, S4 is seen in settings of diastolic heart failure, like from hypertrophic remodeling due to chronic hypertension, and other settings of decreased cardiac compliance, like restrictive cardiomyopathy, or a cardiac tamponade, amyloidosis, or fibrosis, that kind of thing. So what's happening to create the S4? Well, the S4 occurs at the end of diastole when the atrial kick is trying to force blood into a heart that has low compliance, so it doesn't want to budge, and that creates an audible vibration heard as an extra heart sound. So another thing to keep in mind here, you can hear both an S3 and an S4 in the same patient. You may hear S3 and S4 gallop sounds in a patient with combined systolic and diastolic heart failure. So when thinking about the S3 and S4 gallop sounds, some people really like to use the Kentucky-Tennessee mnemonic, but that never really worked for me. Um, instead, I use the sloshing in versus a stiff wall mnemonic, which has nothing to do with states in the union and actually gives you a clue about the underlying pathology. So the S3 indicates that blood is sloshing in to an excess residual volume of the ventricle at the beginning of diastole, hence the emphasis is on the word in in that, so sloshing in, S3. Um, the S4, in contrast, occurs at the end of diastole just before S1 because the ventricle has a stiff wall, hence the emphasis is on the word a. So that's how I remember it, sloshing in for S3, and a stiff wall for S4. Okay, and the time has arrived for the big reveal that was promised. For ITB listeners, we were able to secure you a limited time 25% discount if you enter the code ITB25, as in 25%, at checkout. This code is good for 25% off your physio subscription, but it's only valid for one month from the time that this episode airs. So again, that's ITB25 for an exclusive 25% discount on a physio subscription from yours truly at Inside the Boards.
And guess what? That's it for this episode of Physiology by Physio. So thanks for listening and learning. Now go live it up.